As world leaders gather in Glasgow for COP26, sustainability is very much front of mind. In the real estate context, attention is often afforded to new builds and how to ensure that we develop in a sustainable way going forwards. But what about existing stock? And specifically, returning a building at lease end? Can the dilapidations process be made greener? And how can landlords and tenants work together to achieve that? To discuss this with me is John Rowling, technical partner and dilapidation specialist at TFT and head of its new dilapidation service. Siobhan Cross, real estate dispute resolution partner at Pinsent Masons and lead on the effects of climate change on the real estate sector for the firm. And Alan Clark, head of sustainability and facilities compliance at Pinsent Masons. You're listening to Sarah Jackman. Alan, John, Siobhan, many thanks indeed for joining me today. John, perhaps I can start with you. The pictures I painted just now of greater attention being paid to sustainability in new builds rather than in existing buildings, is that a fair assessment? Uh, well, firstly, thanks for uh, for inviting me to come along. That's very kind. I think it probably is, and with with good reason. Everyone's you know, it's, it's easier to have control over new construction, I think, because of building regulations. Uh, but where you've got existing stock, and and I haven't got the figures to hand, but a substantial amount of our existing building stock will still be here in 2050, and needs to be performing well in 2050. It's a little bit harder. It, it's, it takes a bit more thought. You can't just um, put a pen to paper and start from scratch. You've got to start considering what's there, how to improve it, how to improve it thermally and efficiently. And I also do see, I think it's just early stages, but I do see quite a lot of, of chatter now about discomfort with demolishing buildings and starting again. I rather like brutalist architecture. So there's quite a lot of people that like brutalist architecture that get upset when buildings in Birmingham get knocked down, for example. But I think it's going wider than that. And people are appreciating that if you've got a frame of a building there which works perfectly adequately, there's value in that and there's merit in keeping it for its own sake rather than just taking the easy route, if you like, and knocking it down and starting again. So I think, yes, there's more focus on on new builds, but I should say straight away, I'm certainly not a not a commentator on uh, environmental strategy for new build. Professionally, uh, I deal with older buildings and buildings which have, have lease ends, so at least 5, 10, 15 upwards, you know, hundreds of years old. So I tend not to get involved with with new construction. And and so the reason for, for thinking about this is that that existing construction, those older buildings, definitely need to have some consideration. And we need to look at all areas to try and uh, reduce weight and to reduce carbon emissions. And my specific area of, of, of practice and expertise is in dilapidations. So I see a lot of waste in dilapidation. I have over the years, I've always thought it's a wasteful process, but that waste is now coming into sharper focus, I think. And so it's time for, for everybody involved in dilapidations to try and have a think about the assumptions we make and have a think about how we've done this over the years, how the law has developed over the years, and whether there's some improvements we can make to make dilapidations more sustainable. At your firm, you, you've set up the new Green Dilapidation Service. Tell me a little bit then about the measures that you're starting to suggest to clients who are wanting to approach their dilapidations work in a more sustainable way. Yeah, so the, the TFT Green Dilapidations is a is a starting point, really. It's our attempt to enable both tenants and landlords to 
start this conversation with their with their opposing party. We've focused really on what seems to be uh, the most wasteful aspect, and that is particularly in the office context, the assumption that everything has to be stripped out at lease end, go back to CATE, go back to open plan and then relet it from there. I'm not casting any aspersions that this will probably be market driven ultimately, but in the past I've heard letting agents give advice to their landlord clients to say something like um, prospective tenants can't really visualise things unless it's unless it's open plan. But equally, I see lots of very, very nice fit outs, very effective, very useful fit outs, just get stripped out and then a new tenant comes in, puts the reception in the same place, puts the kitchen in the same place, puts the meeting rooms in the same place. And you just think that's that's madness. You know, there must be some merit in some of these fit outs. And so the idea is to give that fit out at least an opportunity to demonstrate its its merit in the market. So I don't want to go into too much detail about the process because you know, I don't want everyone dropping off. But effectively, what we're saying is that at lease end, the parties can decide to, to enter into a memorandum of understanding, not to have to vary the lease. But in that memorandum of understanding is a, is a procedure that they can agree to or vary, which effectively um, says that we'll give the existing fit out an opportunity in the market. We'll repair, decorate, recarpet, dress a small proportion of it, spend a little bit of money on a small proportion of it. That can be presented to market. So prospective tenants can come in and see what it looks like fitted out. If they like what they see, they can walk around the rest of the floor and see you know, the rest of the fit out, which isn't dressed quite so nicely, but is there. And then if they sign up saying, yes, we're, we're quite happy to take those that fit out without having the capital expenditure of putting in our own fit out, then that's good. And, and the procedure attempts to in, envisage all scenarios of, of what happens, either if that marketing is successful, how do the parties agree to resolve the dilapidations? If it's not successful, how do the parties uh, agree to resolve the dilapidations? If, if, for example, if at the end of the new lease term, the new tenant agrees to strip out the, the, um, uh, the fit out and they've been given a premium to do so, or they don't agree to fit it out and the landlord's potentially got a capital cost in five or ten years time. You know, so the memorandum attempts to, to deal with those scenarios in a way that we think is fair to both the outgoing tenant and the landlord and most importantly is is fair to the environment and uh, means that the assumption that that everything that needs to be stripped out can be debunked. And how have clients generally been responding to those suggestions? I mean have you had a chance to actually see this in action yet? We are at early stages and I think if, if we're thinking about COP going on at the moment. I think we're probably at the stage where we're building up to the Paris Agreement, if you like. We're, we're acknowledging that something needs to happen and we're trying to get people to commit to at least understand that something needs to be happen, needs to happen. And at some point we'll get to the to the Glasgow stage where we're, where we're agreeing actually to do something. And um, so I think we're at the stage now where, where I mean, this is getting a lot of interest. I've, I've been involved with all sorts of bits of dilapidations policy over the years. And, and of the things that we've come up with, Green dilapidations is the one that everyone is is latching onto, you know, Estates Gazette podcasts and lots of clients are interested. I think lots of people know that it's the right thing to do. Um, it's not yet familiar territory, so we haven't had nobody's breaking down the door saying we must do that. Um, but I think it's the sort of thing because it can be measurable as well in terms of the carbon that is saved. It's something that landlords with their sustainability policy uh, policies can look to and can measure and can work out how much carbon has been saved. 
I also think that I mentioned before that this might be market driven. It would not surprise me if in five years, 10 years time, tenants looking to occupy office space, if they're presented with something which just had a lot of money and a lot of carbon invested in it with new raised floors, new ceilings, new lights, new air conditioning, it might look lovely, but they might think to themselves, well, I don't really want to be associated with all of all of that waste. I'd rather look at the building next door, which has been there for a while, is more sustainable, has reused the materials and um, looks just as nice. Well, it will look just as nice once we put a carpet down. You know? I think there's a chance the market will drive this. And if we get a chance later on, I could also perhaps talk about how the situation at lease end and the need for this sort of green dilapidations could be improved by how we deal with uh, earlier stages of the leasing cycle, such as the point where tenants fit outs are being approved by landlords and what we need to do at that stage to make sure that the fit outs are appropriate and won't cause too much waste when they're removed. Okay. You mentioned that there are obvious cost savings and reputational advantages, um, as well as the the sustainability um, advantages of doing it in this way. Can you put your finger on any particular barriers to approaching lease end in this way? Well, dilapidations is very contentious. It's very rare to find a dilapidations dispute that doesn't end up in some sort of argument or bad feeling. And at this stage, at least, with you know, the law is not well aligned to what we want to achieve. So it, it requires both parties to accept that they're going to step away from the from the usual procedure and the usual legal procedure and agree something which which might be financially to their benefit, might not be. We can't tell at this stage and you know, it depends what's going to happen in the future. But to agree to step away from that, to do what is what, what they both would regard as the right thing, whether or not it means they are Uh, slightly better off or worse off uh, in the future as a result of it. Alan, that's perhaps a good point to to just bring you in here. I know that you've done a lot of work um, looking at this from an occupier perspective. What would you perceive as being the advantages of a client wanting to to look at the reinstatement of fit ads? I think Pinsent Masons have got their targets, their net zero target, their science-based targets uh, and so on in place. And Construction works, refurbishment works, dilapidation contribute to our carbon footprint. So first and foremost, there's an obvious advantage to reduce our carbon footprint. When you add that to the reduced costs, potentially reduced costs, uh, and the, the reputational improvement you could make by signing up and participating and in green dilapidations, then I think those are the main advantages. Okay, um, and just on a, a practical level, I mean, how do you think that you achieve or an occupier achieves the right balance between acting conscientiously and in a sustainable way, and then perhaps at the same time just balancing that out with just safeguarding the business interests? Yeah, I think in principle we would always we, we should make every effort. To accept or to be involved in green dilapidations or to accept a previous tenant's fit out. But there there are things that would definitely need to be considered. We would need to ensure that the design of of our new office wasn't compromised from a client brand perspective and so on. As well as other more practical things like the technology, is the structure cabling, is the uh, plant and equipment going to 
beyond its economic life at the end or duration of the lease. So whilst I say that we absolutely should consider it, I think the question would be why would you not consider it really? There are definitely things that you have to take into consideration uh, as well before you make any commitments. Siobhan, just then from a, a legal perspective, I mean, John has mentioned that the law isn't necessarily aligned to some of these um, thoughts at the moment. I mean, what's the sort of general picture from a legal perspective in terms of how this could be supported going forward? Yeah, I mean, I think John is right about where we are, but I think there are definitely legal drivers that would support the approach John is advocating here. First of all, if you look at what John's focused on, which is the reinstatement of tenants' fit-outs, um, the principles around the damages landlords can recover for breach of reinstatement obligations are their common law damages and they compensate the landlord for the loss he suffers. And those that loss will be the reasonable costs of works that it is reasonable for the landlord to carry out. The reinstatement works, it's reasonable objectively for the landlord to carry out. Um, so if you apply you know, the landlord's intention and whether he actually carries out the work will be relevant, but not necessarily determinative if he decides to do reinstatement works that are actually disadvantageous, don't, you know, or reinstate alterations that have no diminution on his value, don't affect the value of his reversion. You know, I think a court would say, well, were those objectively reasonable works to do? Should we give you damages for doing those? So if you look at those principles in the context of where we are at the current moment dealing with climate change, and we're looking at landlords and tenants, as Alan said, um, with carbon reduction targets, net zero targets, landlords and tenants who are um, embracing circular economy principles, then I think the question arises as to is it reasonable for the landlord? in all cases, to require a whole-scale whole reinstatement of tenants' fit-outs. And I think landlords can expect to find tenants asking those questions more by way of defence to um, reinstatement damages claims. Um, so that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is that the concept of supersession is going to apply to reinstatement claims. And when you look at the regulation we've already got, we've got the minimum energy efficiency standard regulations requiring a relatively low EPCE grade at the moment. But I think the market is sufficiently cognizant of the fact that we are going to move to a trajectory of a B for new lettings and commercial properties by 2030 and a C in residential properties by 2025. Now, we don't actually have the regulations, but there's nothing that would suggest those aren't coming down the line. And the heat and building strategy last week further reaffirmed that they are coming down the line. Um, so, you know, if we're looking at what the landlord might be doing to property when the tenant has gone, if, if some of that reinstatement would actually not be necessary because the landlord needs given his lease cycles, given the voids that are going to be available for him to do works in between now and 2025 or 2030, to actually do improvement works, which would render valueless some of those reinstatement works. Again, that's another reason for not requiring those things to be stripped out. So I think there are legal drivers um, for thinking that damages for breaches of reinstatement requirements may be increasingly limited by the impacts of climate change on the market that, in the way I've described. If you look at so that's just looking at reinstatement, if you look at repairs, we then have to bring in the statutory cap on damages by under Section 18.1 of the Landlord and Tenant Act 8, uh, 1927, which will limit the landlord's damages to the diminution in value of his reversion. 
And so if there are elements of repair, which may be relatively small elements of a dilapidations claim, if you're talking about an internal only lease of part, but nonetheless, again, if in the light of the regulatory, current regulatory position and the future regulatory position, not just in MEES, but now we're looking at performance-based ratings, we're looking at the phasing out of fossil fuel heating, um, you know, again, we may have limits on the statute, you know, the statutory cap may bite, there may be further supersession arguments, um, which again, mean that the dilapidations claims would not be as they are today. I guess the next thing to think about from a legal perspective is the leasing side of things. I mean, John touched before on entering into memorandum of understanding. Yeah. Um, how would that work in practice and, and how can the drafting be made better um, when you're looking at um, occupancy from a sort of leasing perspective in terms of how you can make it as green as possible? OK, so starting with the lease. You know, we are seeing a, a massively renewed increase in green lease green lease clauses over the last 12 months. So that's been very apparent for us. In terms of alterations, you know, we don't often see a lease now that doesn't restrict tenants' ability to alter um, in a way that would damage the EPC. We sometimes see alterations provisions which have degrees of requirements around the use of sustainable materials. Those could be beefed up. We don't see which I think is a shame, um, the Better Building Partnership Green Lease Toolkit provision, which actually restricts landlords' rights to reinstatement, where the items to be reinstated are actually assisting the environmental performance of the building. And that's something else that could be used much more. Recently, the Chancery Lane project has issued some net zero um, clauses, which actually frames the whole issue of alterations and reinstatement in the context of an obligation to use reasonable endeavours to improve the efficiency of the building and efficiency is carbon emissions reductions, energy efficiency improvements, reuse, recycling, sustainable materials. So that may be something that we could start building into leases. So that's the lease. Again, on the licence to alter, one needs to be considering it at that stage as well. And we often, you know, it's not unknown to see conflicting provisions because people have addressed their mind to green issues in the lease but when it comes to the license somehow that gets forgotten and we have automatic reinstatement requirements in there so making sure that the lease and the license are consistent in their green provisions um, and then John's suggestion of some sort of MOU at -hmm. the end of the lease or you know maybe even at the beginning of the lease one could put that in place to govern green dilapidations at the end um, I know the Better Building Partnership have suggested in their responsible management toolkit some sort of maybe payment in advance in lieu of reinstatement to avoid the wastefulness of reinstatement. So maybe you could be looking at that at the beginning of a lease. Alternatively, you look at it at the end when parties come to deal with um, dilapidations. But I think, and I'm sure John would agree, it would be so much better if the parties actually got their heads around this 12 months out from lease end rather than the knee-jerk um, server reinstatement notice, because we're going to be out of time otherwise, without actually thinking about what really needs to be reinstated. So if the parties were having that discussion 12 months out, I think they could be agreeing what reasonably needs to be reinstated and what could live 
what, what the landlord could live with in terms of marketing the premises, what could be left in situ. It doesn't mean, and I think the parties should protect their legal positions, it may be notices need to be served, it may be schedules of dilapidations need to be served, and it may be at some point that the MOU has to turn into a legally binding agreement, settling the dilapidations claims um, at some point in that process that John has described. So those are legal issues that need looking at, but I don't think any of them are insurmountable. Okay, and I guess one final question. I mean, John touched before on the fact that dilapidation claims can often be quite contentious. Um, Is there a chance if if both parties are working in a progressive way that they've thought about things in advance, that there is much less risk of a dispute arising at this lease end stage? If they've thought about the if the reinstatements are the major part of this and they've thought about those, as we've suggested, then yes, absolutely. A dispute should be avoidable. It's going to need the lawyers and it's going to need um, John and his colleagues to actually be giving realistic advice to their clients. And the clients, and I think they're increasingly on board, buying into this agenda of actually reducing waste and carbon emissions at least end. Okay. John, perhaps I can bring you back in here and and just um, really ask you to give your sort of final thoughts for our listeners who are perhaps wanting to start thinking about um, reinstatement and lease end. What are the key things that they ought to bear in mind? I think the first thing they need to do is talk to the talk to the other party. So if you're the landlord, talk to the tenant nice and early, and vice versa. Um, there's probably a greater uh, imperative for the tenant to do it or greater incentive for the tenant to do it because the, the you know the chances are that if the landlord engages with this there will be less reinstatement work to be done so tenants should be thinking about it a lot of tenants as i think we say you just inherently know that we spend a lot of money on this fit out it looks lovely it seems daft that it's going to get stripped out you hear that from a lot of tenant clients and so talk to your landlords about it uh, hopefully you've got a good relationship with them you can uh, rather than just being a bit airy-fairy about it and saying, do you want to leave this stuff in? It looks nice. You can now point to a procedure. You know, this is coming. People are thinking about this. We can be greener. You, know, you Mr. Landlord, can improve your your carbon uh, emissions by doing this. So I think it's talk to each other. I think it's also thinking about it as early as possible, as I mentioned before, at the, at the point where the alterations are being considered and the landlord is considering whether to approve them. There's, a, there's an opportunity there for the tenant to be sensible about what they do and not waste too much in the way of resources, be that money or carbon. And there's also an opportunity for the landlord, potentially when the landlord is approving those works, and they have to be reasonable usually when they approve those works. It might well be that reasonableness in a, in a climate crisis is not the same as reasonableness was 10 years ago. So reasonableness might mean are these are these items you're installing making too much of an impact are you are you destroying too much of what's there already is, is what you're taking out going to go to landfill at the end of the lease can these items be dismantled recycled reused are the alterations that you're making now for example likely to be uh, useful to somebody else or are they so bespoke and weird that they are inevitably going to get stripped out at the end so i think there's 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 a conversation all to be had also to be had about what reasonableness means in that context and if you'll give me a moment as well, there's, there's, there's a few other points that have been raised that I'd just, just like to comment on. Anna made a, a perfectly valid point that if you take on a second-hand space with, let's say, second-hand air conditioning, which will reach the end of its 
SIBSI life cycle period some point during your lease term, your advisors will say, don't sign that lease, go somewhere else or, um, or, or, or cap the service charge or do something. So it really needs air conditioning systems to last longer than 15 years. Actually, it needs people to use fewer air conditioning systems and to be able to turn air conditioning systems off and on again without them needing maintenance work just because they've been turned off. So I think there's a there's a, an area of work there for the manufacturers of this carbon intensive uh, equipment to frankly do a better job, make them last longer, make them more flexible and for occupiers not to rely on air conditioning, for occupiers to prefer buildings that have openable windows and have other policies. So, for example, if it gets over a certain temperature, everybody works from home. You don't need to turn air conditioning on. So there's, there's all sorts of other areas where there can be improvements mm. that, that are available and should be thought about long before I get involved in the dilapidations. But if you get to the dilapidations point and those things haven't been considered, talk to, the, talk to your opposite number, talk to the landlord, talk to the tenant, try and work out what's sensible and and see see if it works. You know. All right. John, Alan and Siobhan, many thanks for your time today. I think we've got a really good flavour of the approach that could be adopted, although I'm sure there's there's very much more that we could say on the topic. But thank you very much for giving us that introduction. It's been really interesting. You've been listening to Sarah Jackman speaking to John Rowling of TFT, Siobhan Cross and Alan Clark of Pinsent Masons. For more on sustainability and our COP26 coverage, see egi.co.uk.